Well, good morning. We'll be in Colossians chapter 4 this morning. Colossians chapter 4. It's interesting because our series on Colossians is pretty much done, and you'll remember that I was scheduled to preach this sermon a couple weekends ago, but due to the birth of a wonderful little baby that's sitting in the back, uh, we had to postpone that sermon to this weekend. So Colossians chapter 4. We'll read our text this morning and then we'll, uh, then we'll pray. Colossians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 2. Paul says, Continue steadfastly thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Approach your word. Um, chase distraction from our minds. Lord, there are so many things that press upon our attention and our schedules. Well, Lord, and applying your word is before us now. So Lord, help us to be totally invested in that duty this morning at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Not just any. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, but the. Uh, I completed biblical classes and biblical studies classes and ministry classes. I was able to do it in about three years with some help from Emmanuel Church. And I realized as I've never had the opportunity to look you all in the eyes and just say thank you. Um, so sincerely, I mean that. Thank you. The contributions from Emmanuel Church were able to help me speed up my education in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to. If it wasn't for Emmanuel Church and for the gifts of Emmanuel Church, I would quite literally still babies. And so that would be fun for no one. And so I thank you, my wife thanks you, so sincerely thank you, Emmanuel Church and the families of Emmanuel Church for helping us. But while in my classes, lectures, who knows how much reading, all that time spent learning what I needed to know. Then, on the lawn at the seminary campus, on a beautiful day last May, I graduated. And at that ceremony, the president of the school, Dr. Al Moeller, delivered an address to the graduates in which he gave a charge, clarifying what I can now go out and do. So three years spent on what I needed to know, and then at the end, Here's what you need to go do, therefore. Today's passage functions sort of like that graduate soaring statements about Christ, who he is, what he's done, the worship that is due to him, therefore. Uh, he is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him, and all things were created for him. 
He's before all things. In Christ, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's just from chapter 1. Okay, so Colossians gives us these exalted, soaring, high, robust views of Christ and what he's done. Well, what we'll see today are the practical outworkings at the end of this letter's body. Paul often does this, where he'll give a series towards the end of his letters. So he spends a considerable amount of time explaining the what, and then he'll, at the end, after this, it's all conclusion and specific addresses, and Alex already preached on that. So these commands illustrate for the Christian how one should work out the high Christology that we've seen in this letter. Is Christ really as preeminent as we've been shown that he is in the book of Colossians? Well, if so, we're going to hear some things that should characterize our response to that. So hence the title of this sermon, Christology Applied. Persistence in prayer. And then second, we'll look at the proclamation from prison. And then finally, uh, some prudent practices that should characterize the persistence in prayer. Let's look again at our text. Verse 2. Continue. Just note the, the interesting word usage in a couple places in this verse. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So it's not just you should pray. Or Paul says, continue. That's interesting. Do so steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in your prayers and characterized by thanksgiving. So let's look at persistence. He's not just telling us to pray hard, though he will say that later about Epaphras. Epaphras struggles for you mightily in his prayers. He's telling us to pray regularly. Continue in prayer. Continue praying. Pray always, something he said elsewhere. Pray constant. Be consistent in prayer. So Christian, let's not just be under the idea that our prayers must always be in our closet. Alone. Before dawn. Before anyone else has awakened. For hours at a time. Pray in the closet of your own mind. Of your own heart throughout the day. I have found often this is something that has kept me from prayer. If I wake up, I'm a little bit late, I'm rushed, I'm hurried, you know what? I don't have a half hour for prayer. So I'll pray tomorrow. Three minutes. Pray as I'm getting ready. On the way to work. Continue in prayer. Pray continually. And pray in different ways. So it's not just persistence, but there's sort of a variety that seems to come through in this verse. Uh, first, we see sort of generation. You think about a person? Pray for them. You're talking about a project you have going on at work? Take a moment and ask God for help. Paul mentions being watchful, being alert. Let's be watchful for need. As we encounter need, your own need, the need of others, Bring it to the throne of grace and receive grace to help. Christian, if you're honest with yourself, there are so many things that you need. A young pastor 
was asked to reflect on his first year in ministry. He was asked what it was that he had learned after that one year. He responded, God's sheep are so needy. He didn't mean that in terms of, ugh, they're so needy, they're so clingy. No. Just noting, people have so many needs. If you don't remember, that young pastor was Alex DePrima. Uh, That was at a members meeting after his first year of ministry. You need help, Christian, to be selfless in your marriage. You need wisdom to decide what direction in life you're going to take. You need encouragement when you're tempted to despair. You need fresh vigor when you're tempted to be apathetic. You need intervention from brothers and sisters when you're drifting from gospel faithfulness. You need care and love and community and hope. You need all sorts of biological functions just to work flawlessly in order for you to take another breath. We need life, we need breath, we need everything. Brother, sister, petition God for these things. Believing that because he knows exactly what you need, he will give you far beyond what you need. He did not spare you Christ. Remember. So what would he withhold from you? Other than what is evil and what would do you harm. Romans 8 makes this point. Because he did not spare his own son, how will he not with him graciously, freely give us all things? What won't God give to his children? What does them harm? What is evil? What is bad? So if God has given it to you, it is good. So petition God to give you what it is that you need. And do you know how you're to repay God for his goodness to you? The Bible tells us, Psalm 116 verses 12 and 13 say this, How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? The psalmist asks, God's been so good to me. He's given me what I need. He's given me so much. How can I repay him? He tells us, I will lift up the cup of my salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. God, fill my cup again. That's how we repay him. He's been faithful to us. God, I'm so grateful that you've answered prayer that I'm going to ask you to do it again. We repay him by saying, please, God, I need more help from you. I need help in the warfare against my own sin. I need courage to say things that need to be said. I need fresh views of Christ in his glory. God is glorified. God is made much of when we rely on him for what we need. We have this view of God that he gives to us sternly or begrudgingly. Oh, you again. No, the opposite. God delights when his children come and say, please, Can you help me? Parents in the room, you know this about your children. Owen, uh, our our almost two-year-old, he's learning Spanish and he's learning English uh, because his mother's from South America, I'm from right here, and so he's learning both languages. That slows down his speech development a little bit. He does know a couple words. Uh, One of them that he's learned is please. So if he wants something, we've taught him that the right way to ask for something is to say, please, and he'll go, please. You know how hard it is for me not to give him something when he says please? It rips me apart inside. He comes to something that he should not have, a a kitchen knife that's up on the counter, something that he's really not supposed to have, and he goes, please. Now I know 
He has no business with a kitchen knife. He could only do himself harm with a kitchen knife. It's really hard for me to say, son, you can't have the butcher's knife. Why? Because he's come to me so sweetly. He really, really believes daddy's going to get this for me. I can't reach it. Daddy will do it for me. It's really, really hard for me to say no to my son when he comes to me and says, please, daddy, please. He can't say daddy yet. Well, he kind of can. He goes, daddy. (laughs) Kind of a delay. But when he says those things to me, it awakens in me a paternal impulse to go get for him. Right? With God. How can we repay him for all of his goodness? We come to him again, hold up the cup again and say, God, please fill it. God, please, I need your help again. Lord, please, I need this, I need that, my sister needs this. Please help us, Lord. God is glorified when we do this. But, lest we get carried away with just asking for things, we are to do this in thanksgiving. We're asking God for things. This reminder is needed. Don't overlook God's past, current, and guaranteed future blessings to you as you're requesting help for your present needs. Parents delight to give good things to their children, but the heart of the most doting parent can become hardened if the kid never says thank you. Right? If the kid is just a chorus of, I want, I want, I want more, if there's a demanding sense to it, that makes me angry as a father. When no one doesn't come to me and says, please, when he says, ah, nope, not getting it now. Even the heart of the most loving parent can become hardened when the child is not thankful in their requests. On the contrary, when a child does show genuine gratitude, Even a hard-hearted parent can want to pour affection out on their child. So Christian, don't forget as you're asking God for help, as you've been commanded to do, that you thank him, that you praise him for what he has done. This has been a repeated theme in this book, and it shows up again here, thanksgiving. Also intercession. So sort of general petition, pray. Pray with thanksgiving, but then look where Paul goes next. At the same time, Pray also for us. Because it's now a different kind of prayer. Now you're not asking God for your own needs. Now you're interceding on behalf of your brothers and sisters. Paul values the prayers of God's saints. Paul asks them, pray for us, brothers. We want your prayers. I'll admit, it can at times seem like a trite request to ask for prayers. Uh, Hey, pray for us. It can just become a habitual request that you make. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for us. But Paul is in chains. And knowing the power of prayer, what does he want? He wants prayers. We should desire the intercession of our brothers and sisters. We should seek the intercession of our brothers and sisters. You should desire to aid your brothers and sisters by offering intercession to them. Or do you not truly believe that prayer does anything? You say these words in prayer, maybe in the solitude of your own home or your own room. You're speaking seemingly to the walls, to the curtains, the ceiling. 
you're talking about things that are completely out of your control. I want these people who are struggling with infertility to have a baby. You can't do anything about that. And it can seem sort of trite to think that you sitting in your room talking about it to the walls is really going to do anything. I want war on the other side of the planet to stop. Well, good luck. What possible use is your thinking on these matters? What possible good can come from your measly 10 minutes talking about this alone in your room at night? Well, do you believe God can do something about these things? Do you believe God can act? Do you believe that he will? That should give fresh vigor to our prayers. John Calvin has said unquestionably, it is not in vain that the Lord has appointed this exercise of love between us that we pray for one another. Unquestionably, it is not vain. It's not wasted time. It's not just you talking to the walls. It's you talking to an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God who as a spirit is present everywhere, hearing everything. And he's told you that he's attentive to the cries of his children. So intercede for your brothers and sisters, believing that God will act. Ask for the prayers of your brothers and sisters, believing that through their prayers, God has ordained acts to happen. So we see persistence in prayer, different types of prayer. Next, let's look at the proclamation from prison. So if I was just making an outline on sort of the imperative verbs in this verse, uh, this point wouldn't make the list. He doesn't give a a command about his proclamation in prison. However, uh, Paul does make some important points here that I don't think should go unnoticed. Uh, What we have here is the content of the prayers that Paul is asking for. So what does he ask for? First, he asks for a door for the word. Let's look back at our text. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So everything there in verse The second half of verse 3 and into verse 4, this is what Paul wants them to pray for on his behalf. How is it that Paul doesn't ask them to pray for his freedom from chains? Now, he will bring this up later. Later, he will ask them at the very end of the book, remember my chains. I think we can sort of infer from that that what he's asking for is, remember me in your prayers. But what does this verse revolve around? He asks them to pray that he will have a door of opportunity for spreading the gospel and that he will do so clearly. It's these sorts of passages that remind us how little we suffer for Christ's sake in our context. Now, I don't want to use that as an occasion to scold us for living in a context that we live in. I do want to encourage you, Christian, that we should strive to be more heavenly minded. How exactly is it that Paul asks for prayers for his ministry of the gospel and does not here ask for prayers for his freedom from chains? It's obviously because he prioritizes gospel ministry over personal comfort. Now, that hits home. And honestly, I hesitate to say things on topics like this because I know my own heart. I know how easily my time and more importantly, my attention and my priorities could be monopolized by the cares of this world. 
And before I know it, I've left no room for gospel ambitions. I think this is true of all of us. But Paul is so focused on Christ and the gospel that even as he is in chains, he wants prayers that send forth Christ's word. Our hearts are so fickle. And they're drawn this way and that by a thousand things that are not Christ and are not for Christ's sake. Let me say that again. Our hearts are drawn a thousand different ways by things that are not Christ, but there are a lot of things that are not Christ, but that are good things. My heart is drawn a thousand different ways just by my family. Right? You have a thousand obligations to families and to friends and to work. Those things aren't Christ, but they should be done for Christ's sake. In doing them, we must be mindful of Christ. But our hearts are so fickle that we will do these things, we will engage in these activities, forgetful of Christ and his kingdom. So brothers and sisters, let's repent and seek with renewed vigor and renewed passion those things which are above and enjoy the things of this world as God's gifts to us for Christ's sake. He says, Open, uh, that God may open to us a door for the word to do what? To declare the mystery of Christ. Let me just say a brief word on this idea of the mystery of Christ. Don't misunderstand Paul's use of the word mystery here. Uh, Paul isn't emphasizing how mysterious Christ is or highlighting elements of Christ's person and work that we just don't understand. It's such a mystery. In fact, just the opposite is in view. Now, a quick disclaimer, I've mentioned this before, but let me just give you feedback as listeners on what you should be doing right there. Whenever someone says, I know it looks like the Bible is saying this, but really, it's not. What the Bible is saying is this. So when the Bible uses the word mystery, it doesn't mean mysterious, how Christ is a mystery. What it, what it means is this. At that point, as listeners, you should perk up a little bit. Okay, preacher, you're telling me that what seems like the plain reading of the scripture here is not really the plain reading. Something else is meant. What Paul really means is this. What Jesus really is trying to say is that. Okay, preacher, prove it. Right? Uh, show me why you're saying that. Don't just take it for granted. Because preachers and teachers of the Bible will go off in all sorts of crazy directions saying what the Bible really means here. You should be asking, silently, mentally, for proof. Okay, what does it mean? Disclaimer over. Let me indulge that question that you're now asking. Um, what does Paul mean here with this use of the word mystery? Okay, well, he doesn't mean that Christ is mysterious, and I know this because in the first chapter of Colossians, we see Paul use some of the very same language that we're seeing here. He uses the same word, mystery. And here's what he says in Colossians 1. This mystery, hidden for ages, hidden for generations, but now revealed to his saints. And this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what Paul brings out in Colossians 1. Also, in both passages, Paul, either immediately before or immediately after the use of the word mystery, emphasizes his desire to quote, chapter 1, make the word of God fully known. Or in chapter 3, in our passage, that I may make it clear. So when Paul uses the word mystery, we're talking about things that were once hidden, but now revealed. So that I may declare the mystery of Christ. Uh, he talks about marriage being a parable, a living picture of Christ's love for his bride. That's a mystery. 
something that was, that's now being revealed. So ironically, the use of the word mystery often in Paul implies more revelation and clarity than it does mystery or confusion. So just don't be thrown off by the word mystery there that he uses in terms of Christ. On the other hand, on the contrary, instead of being mysterious, there are to be clear declarations of Christ. Paul wants to make this clear. This is how we ought to speak, Paul says. So, speaking of clarity, Paul's request is that they would pray for Paul to be clear in his presentation of Christ, which he says is how we ought to speak. The way to present Christ is with clarity. Perhaps one of the greatest ills, again, perhaps one of the greatest ills, I don't say this is the biggest threat to the church right now, but perhaps one of the greatest ills threatening the church is the unclear manner in which the gospel is often expressed in churches. Uh, this happens often in, in, in many churches that are labeled seeker-sensitive. Uh, these are often larger churches with dim lights and smoke machines and high production value. Uh, these churches are not a monolith, so I'm not speaking of all of them, but I am speaking sort of generally with broad brushstrokes, that the goal in these sorts of ministries is to sort of sweep the congregation off their feet with a certain sort of atmosphere uh, before the speaker gets up and delivers a TED Talk sort of message dealing with a few vague concepts like light or darkness or hope or fear. I was once at a church like this for a Christmas service, uh, an event in which there's a, a heightened awareness that unbelievers are in the room, right? Christmas and Easter. We've got to make sure our gospel witness is as clear and as pointed and as, as helpful as it can be. And this was the gospel appeal. A direct quote. Isn't there a lot of darkness in this world? Wouldn't you like to have more light? That's the gospel appeal. That is unclear. That is eternally destructive in how unclear it is. Now, is it a true statement? Is there a lot of darkness in the world? Absolutely. Did Jesus come to bring light? Absolutely, of course. But with no context and no explanation, the terms are so general and so vague as to render them almost meaningless and extremely unhelpful. The listener is left to define what those terms mean. So if a presentation of the gospel is characterized by words like potential or purpose, while words like Christ or sin or repentance or faith are absent, you've got an unclear gospel, if not a false gospel. Uh, consider the words of Mark Dever. Uh, this was at the 2018 meeting of Together for the Gospel. Dever said, quote, Our evangelism needs not to be simply selling unsaved people benefits that they already in their flesh want. Wouldn't you like some purpose in your life? Not a good way to share the gospel. People who hate God like purpose. They like to feel important. Friends, we need to share the gospel like we see it in the Bible if we want to see conversions like we see them in the Bible. Now, this sort of phenomenon, sort of unclear, squishy gospel presentations, that's not just a problem in sort of the seeker-sensitive circles. Even well-intentioned, reformed believers can fall into this sort of trap. Don't you feel unhappy? Do you know 
unsaved person, that Jesus can satisfy your soul? Now, that can be a fine place to start a gospel conversation. But that is not the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the atonement, the reconciliation with the Father. A wrathful God, sinful people, Christ intervening at God's behest, and we are made right with God again through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. Now, there are wonderful side effects, byproducts of the gospel, like satisfaction, purpose, hope. But those things are effects of the gospel. They are not themselves the gospel itself. J.I. Packer highlights this distinction. Uh, This is a book that Pastor Alex has recommended multiple times. I'll second the recommendation. It's called A Quest for Godliness. In that book, Packer highlights the distinction between what he calls the old gospel, the Bible gospel, and the new gospel. Listen. The new gospel fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it's trying to do. It's too exclusively, the new gospel, it's too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace, to bring comfort, to bring happiness, to bring satisfaction. It is too little concerned to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful too, more so indeed than the new but only incidentally. For its first concern, the first concern of the old gospel was always to give glory to God. It was always, essentially, a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment, a summons for us to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends. Its center of reference, the old gospel, was unambiguously God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. Whereas the chief aim of the old gospel was to teach people to worship God, the concern of the new seems limited to making man feel better. The subject of the old gospel was God and his ways with men. The subject of the new is man and the help God gives him. There is a world of difference. The whole perspective and emphasis of gospel preaching has changed. End quote. The first time I read that, I immediately closed the book and called a couple of my closest friends and said, guys, we got to talk. Because we had drifted into a manner of presenting the gospel that centered on things like happiness and contentment and satisfaction. It's a God-sized hole in your heart, and only Jesus is going to satisfy the wants of your soul. If that's the center of our gospel presentation, and not the fact that Friend, you are a sinner. Look at your life. Don't you know it? God's wrath is coming upon sinners. Flee to Christ for help. Yes, all sorts of good comes from that. But you need Christ. You must be born again. That's the heart of a God-centered gospel presentation. Third, so we've seen the proclamations from prison Paul's desire for clarity and and opportunities to spread the gospel. Third, prudent practices. So let's look at our text again. Starting in verse five. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, 
making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Um, With passages like this, uh, it's sort of like preaching through the Proverbs, where if you look at like Romans, Paul has a, a proposition and a proposition and a proposition and there's all these logical connections between them and there's all these conjunctions that show the connections. With Proverbs, you sort of got a, a truism and then a statement and then and another truism. They're sort of unrelated to one another. Um, that's sort of how passages like this work. Um, I'm not spending too much time looking for deep unifying principles through each of these commands. I think Paul is giving them occasional commands based on what the book has been about. And so I just want to address them one at a time. So in this portion of the text, Paul makes it clear that he desires the behavior, the conduct of the Colossians to be governed by wisdom. Now Paul has outsiders in view here. So look at the text again. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That is, unbelievers. Those outside the church. Quick note, this sort of exclusivity in your language is entirely appropriate. Thinking in terms of insider, outsider, when it comes to the church, perfectly appropriate, should be done. I was once at a church where the mantra was, quote, you don't have to believe to belong. It's hard to overstate how wrong that is and how harmful that is. You absolutely must believe or you don't belong. Now, you're welcome here, unbeliever, outsider. But please note, Christ, by his own death and resurrection, has united every believer to himself, mystically, powerfully, united believers to himself and therefore to one another. So if you've not been united to Christ, of course you don't belong. Again, welcome, come. But no, there's something mystical that has happened here to believers that is not true of unbelievers. There are insiders, there are those in the vine, and there are outsiders. And we do people an eternal disservice by lying to them in the name of inclusivity and the preservation of self-esteem. So the outsider language here is not only appropriate, it's constructive. It's helpful to think in that way. So in Paul's view here, specifically, how we act towards outsiders, and how we answer outsiders. First, let's look at wisdom. Wisdom in our actions, wisdom in our behavior. The undertone running beneath Paul's commands here seems to be a concern that believers give no occasion to the world for valid criticism of their conduct. Let me say that again. Paul's concern seems to be that we believers do not give the world occasion for valid criticism of our conduct. Because bad conduct on the part of Christ's people brings an entirely unfitting shade of disgrace upon Christ and his gospel. So Christian, watch your mouth. Watch your behavior. Because it's not just you that you represent. The reputation of Christ and the reputation of the gospel waxes or wanes with the reputation of his people. Ask unbelievers why they don't embrace Christianity. What's the answer you're going to hear very often? Christians. Christians are why I don't want to be a Christian. 
Now, sometimes that's not valid. Uh, sometimes that's, that's imposed on Christians. Oh, well, Christians are just bigots, only because we hold to a, a, a biblical sexual ethic, for instance. But other times, our life does need examination, real examination. Are there attitudes? Are there words? Are there behaviors of mine that consistently fail to meet the standards of personal holiness that Christ has set upon his people? If so, understand it's that sort of double-mindedness that turns people away from Christ. That sort of hypocrisy among Christians that alienates unbelievers from the gospel further than they already are. What time you have with unbelievers, use it well. Use it with wisdom. Be wise in the way you deal with those who don't know Christ. Christian, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Be circumspect in your behavior. Circumspect. You know what that means? Think of the roots, prefixes there. Circum. Circumnavigate. Circumvent. Around. Spect. Spectator. Spectacles. Seeing. Looking. To be circumspect is, is to be what? It's to be watchful. Which Paul's already enjoined upon us to be in our prayers. To be looking about you and acting accordingly. Be aware be circumspect, be circumspect, be wise. And then, Paul continues. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. And he goes from your walk to your words. Let speech, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Answering here, what does this mean? I think we're seeing the same theme sort of running through this verse that we saw previously. Paul's concerned with those who bring charges against Christ and his gospel. So when we're dealing with outsiders, Paul urges us, be wise, speak graciously, particularly in contexts where we're having to provide an answer. When we find ourselves in dispute about our godly conduct, about Christ or about the gospel. There's a style of Christian disagreement that has gained popularity in some circles, circles that overlap pretty closely with ours, that values gruffness, combativeness, shock value, a style of engagement that seeks to ruffle feathers and makes pointed efforts to offend. These folks would say that if you're not offending the world in your dealings with them, you're not doing it right. That sort of thinking, I think, is inconsistent with the manner of Jesus and the teaching of Paul. Paul here tells us that specifically in our dealings with outsiders, specifically when we're having to provide an answer to outsiders, that we are to be gracious in our speech. You think a bad-tempered, quarrelsome style is the Christian way of disagreement? Well, tell that to Richard Sibbs the great Puritan preacher, whose dealings with sinners were so tender and so winsome that he was called the honey-mouthed, the sweet dropper. Uh, unbelievers would stray away from Sibs's church because they were afraid they might be converted if they walked in. Christian, you should maintain a disposition that is warm, gracious, winsome, particularly when you are having to provide an answer, 
when you are in dispute. Be firm, be resolute, but be gracious. Seek to be winsome. Whatever charges are brought against you and whatever charges are brought against Christ, even in times where godliness demands that you be firm and stand your ground, do so in a way that adorns the gospel and does not bring shame upon it. I mentioned this earlier in the equip class. Uh, If you're watching two people debate, one gives a calm and rational expression of the facts, re-explaining as needed, always keeping their composure, and the other loses their temper, descending into shouts and personal attacks. Which one do you assume has the wrong position? The quarrelsome one. The one who needs to retreat to personal attacks, not the one who stood their ground. Know with what you ought to answer, yes, and then know how you ought to answer. Give thought to the method of your speech as well as the content of your speech. Your delivery must be consistent with your message. Now, quickly, let me note that uh, this does not only apply to disputation, right? Our speech should always be gracious. That's what it says in the text. Look again. Let your speech always be gracious. So not just when you're on the street in the town square arguing with the unbeliever. When you're at home, children, with your parents, let your speech to your parents be gracious. Don't take a tone of disrespect or hostility towards the people that have given you so much. Parents, to your children, let your speech be gracious. Now, even when you have to be firm, even if, even if there's urgency, if Owen's walking towards the road, Owen, stop! Doesn't mean I can't raise my voice if, if I need to protect him. But don't scold your children in a manner that's overcome with anger at them. Impatience at their slowness to progress. Instead, be gracious to them with your friends, with fellow church members. People have made Take time and give thought to how your speech might be gracious in every context of your life. Employer, how do you talk to your employees? Do you make them feel small? Do you engage in little power moves to let them know who's in charge? Or are you secure in your position and the good job that you do so you're freed up to speak to them in a manner that's gracious? Let your speech always be gracious. Let your speech always be seasoned with salt. One commentator noted, Though our talk be not always of grace, it must always be with grace. So though our talk need not always be of grace, whatever it is we're talking about, it must be with grace. In conclusion, this is high Christology applied. When finishing up the body of this letter, this letter that has been so full of exalted views of Christ, Paul chooses to give these commands to the people at Colossae. If you think much of Christ, this is apparently how you conduct yourself. So, brothers, sisters, examine yourself. Do we pray? Do you pray? Do you continue in prayer? Are you steadfast in prayer? 
If someone, if we all were just given an audience into your prayer life, would we say, that person is watchful in their prayers? Boy, they are steadfast in their prayers. And note, I'm not asking how you intend to pray. How do you pray? Are you thankful in your prayers? Can those around you in need, your brothers and sisters who are fearful, who are doubting, your brother who needs fresh gifts of faith from the Lord, can he count on you to intercede for him? Do we prioritize our gospel ministry over personal comfort? Or do we forget those things that are above? Do we strive to maintain gentleness and graciousness in our speech? Is our conduct governed overall by wisdom and circumspection? Apparently, if these things don't characterize us, it's because we think little of Christ. If we don't find ourselves walking in this manner, it's because apparently we don't believe the material in Colossians 1 through 3 like we thought we did. If you believe what he said about Christ so far in this book, this is the sort of behavior, these are the sorts of attitudes that should follow. So, brothers, sisters, let's believe big things, sweet things, eternally important things about Christ. And then, in our prayers, in our proclamation of Christ and his gospel, in our practice, let's apply that Christology that Jesus may be glorified. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Colossians. God, week by week, for these past months, we have come to the book of Colossians on Sunday mornings, and you have shown us things about yourself. You've encouraged us. You've convicted us of our sin and our low views of Christ. Lord, help us to take those things and keep them. Help us to remember the time we spent as a church in the book of Colossians. And then help us to honor you and to honor your word by adjusting our lives accordingly. Our loves, our attitudes, our words, our behavior. God, bring these things in accord with your will for us. And we will glorify you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.